0: The Columbus Dispatch series Unmasked looks at the connections between firefighters diagnosed with cancer and exposure to carcinogens released during and after a fire. As part of the series, we're presenting podcasts featuring firefighters and the people around them. In this podcast, reporter Lucas Sullivan talks with Cleveland Fire Department Battalion Chief Frank Zabo about how cancer has hit his department hard. Reporter Lucas Sullivan also talks with Cleveland firefighter Brian McCafferty about a fire that boiled the skin off his knees and whether there's a connection to the adenocarcinoma he's struggling with now.
1: Well, there was uh, Tommy Huff, Larry Huffman, Henry McClaus.
0: It only takes seconds for Cleveland
2: Division of Fire Battalion Chief Frank Zabo to begin reciting a list of his brethren who have died of cancer. Uh,
1: Howard Cornell... T-Bone Terry Bradesca from Station 17.
2: In addition to being a battalion chief for Cleveland, Zabo also serves as the pension and benefits coordinator for the Firefighters Union, Local 93. The roles give Zabo one of the most unique perspectives in this battle against cancer in the fire service. On one hand, it's his job to protect his guys and make sure they are protecting themselves. And then when they get sick, even terminally sick, it's Zabo's job within the union to make sure their families are taken care of when they're gone.
1: You know, we have, unfortunately, I've watched about 30 members since, active members since I've been on, um, pass away. Um, half, About half of those were due to what I would believe is occupational cancer. Most of the rest of the other half are accidents and uh, cardiovascular issues. But, um, so when planning for these members, um, uh, we kind of saw the effect that cancer had on the members firsthand, um, the effect that it had on the family, and the inevitable planning um, for potential retirement um, due to the cancer, or in some cases, um, ultimately succumb to the disease. And so, um, you know, it's it's uh, important work. It's necessary work. It's not always very easy. I, I've had to have the painful conversations with members in the hospital. Um, I've had to have the painful conversations with the spouse and the member, and then have to leave the room and talk to the doctor or the nurse practitioner and tell him, cough it up, give him, give him an estimate on how much longer this guy has to live so that he can, so he can do what he needs to do for his family on the pension end here. I, I, I would say that the most satisfying work that I've ever done have been for our brothers that were, were fighting cancer and for their survivors.
2: Zabel was once the union president for Local 93. During that time he hashed out contracts, work grievances, or seniority issues. Now he begs doctors to tell a firefighter diagnosed with cancer how much time they have left. Or he makes house visits when a son or a spouse calls to say they need to help planning a funeral.
1: It put a name to the face. You'd hear things at the station about folks you didn't know or only worked with a few times. But when you have to spend a lot of time with the member, um, and their family, it, 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 it really, the light bulb really goes off. You really, it becomes personal. You, you really realize that you're not going to be young forever. That, um, that occupational disease, occupational cancer is something that we need to look at and we need to have a paradigm shift. You know, we need to get to the point where, uh, our new personnel that are coming on that were, you know, we, we get rid of the badge of honor, for example, of working without a mask, you know, that was prevalent 25 years ago and, and put on a new badge of honor that you're going to wear your mask as long as you can um, to, to reduce your chances of occupational cancer. I think we've gone away from the, the tough guy thing I th- to a large degree. I, I think that just a lot of times, you know, cancer is a silent killer. Um, it brews for years and then it comes in it hits, it, it, it gives you a knockout punch out of nowhere. Um, there's some folks that have beaten it. Um, but, um, you know, I'll speak for myself. You know, when I, I came on, I was 23 years old. I was in excellent shape. I'm on top of the world. Um, I'm going to live forever. And, um, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's difficult to reconcile the fact that you're not going to live forever. And the folks in the organization that are going to realize that first are the ones that have been around longer. You know, your 25-year veterans that have have watched a lot of people pass away um, from cancer and from other causes and uh, who are approaching age 50 or beyond themselves and, uh, and know that it's going to catch up with you. Those things are going to catch up with you. But it, it can be very difficult to reconcile that for a firefighter in his 20s that maybe his own parents are, you know, maybe still in their 40s and and very healthy, you know, they equate cancer sometimes with folks in their 80s or 90s that are very old, you know, and they haven't seen it.
2: In so many cases of firefighters battling cancer, the root cause is obscure. Was it the smoke ingested during a fertilizer company fire in 2006? Or was it the cumulative effect of extinguishing 50 car fires since 2006? Cleveland firefighter Brian McCafferty can't pinpoint how he got the cancerous growth on his right arm. It could have been that house fire that took the life of a seven-year-old. He recounted that story to me in a Cleveland bar owned by a family friend.
3: Well, it was one where I burned my knees. Back in, uh, 96, it was my, I was on my third move. Uh, Engine 9, uh, over on 67 Woodland, I had gone... That morning, the way it worked out was, it was a strange morning. I'd been there about six, eight months, or about ten months at the time. <clears throat> um, we Earlier in the day, we had a fire, or not a fire, but an alarm going off at a factory. I had been working out at the time. It was around seven or so. It was like after dinner, or just before dinner. I had gone into the, uh, uh, we get this call for a factory, and I had to go up through a second story window to get through to, to knock down a metal door to get in because we had no well, we had no number to call at that time. So I, I was sweating from from, where, from working out before that and also sweating from breaking through this metal door. So I'm pretty sure it, it, what happened was that the inside of my turnout pants had gotten kind of wet from my sweat. Later on, the fire came in about 2.30 in the morning, uh, report of a child trapped upstairs. One woman was on the front lawn, another woman who had brought the child upstairs had dove out the third story window and landed up on the stairs and she was, she was dead. We were going over her to get into the house. And it was just the weirdest feeling fire because I. My officer later on, who was uh, the driver at the time, Tommy, Thomas Huff, who's passed away from cancer, um, he, had, uh, he, had, um, he had felt a fire like that later on. And he said it was just you couldn't you couldn't stay on your knees because it was so hot, but yet you couldn't get up too far because your ears would start to burn. With the equipment that we have, we tend to go in a little farther than we probably should, but that's what we do. That's what we do in Cleveland. We're aggressive to fight a fire because we're aggressive to put the fire out, so then we can all go home safely. But this one just so happened that the, the floor and I was I had the tip and trying to get these guys to the stairs, the squad guys that were there to the stairs to go search for the child. It was like, we're just being aggressive. We're just gonna fight and push this thing back and let them go upstairs. It was really strange, the room the room glowed. It, normally you go and you just see a fire and you start to hit everything and you hit the floor and you hit everything when you feel the heat. The, the room was glowing with everything, every metal frame of everything was glowing in the room, which was which was very odd. I'd never seen one like that before. Leo Baca was uh, the guy behind me. He was the backup man and since uh, uh, Albert Camara, my officer was outside helping pack up a woman who had, who had jumped out the first floor or the uh, second floor window up. On the front, uh, she had a broken hip and she knew she was getting packed and he was doing a size up also on the outside of the building. So I kept telling Leo that my, my knees are burning, it's really hot. And he says, yeah, I know, because he was getting up and down. He was telling me after the fire that he couldn't stay on his knees and he couldn't inch up a little too far because his, knees, his ears would start to burn. So I was telling him at the time. And, he related to another officer who I'm sure told the chief at the time that something was wrong. So So what was the exact order given to you? Uh you. Squad. Like, okay.
2: McCafferty's chief ordered him off the fire and into a squad for medical help.
3: Turned out I had burned both knees. Also with my possibly my inside of my turnout pants being wet because of those two runs before that. Working out and then that run I had before that when I was breaking down a door and sweating. It was a real hot summer day. Or, or October day I should say. And then uh, it just, I think it was more like everything was wet inside there and it kind of steamed them. Pretty much boiled my, my like a boil in the bag, you know, basically. Got uh, third degree burns and dead skin grafts some months later. Uh, they start off with um, a scrubbing. First they had to assess everything. They gave me uh, some morphine. And then the pain just does not go away. When it hits those nerves and you've got that kind of burns, the pain does not go away at all. And they scrub, they scrub the burns with Dreft, which is a, it's a, it's a baby. Pretty much a soap. There's no dyes or lies or anything else to it. Just just straight up. And they scrub, literally scrub. And then it was every third day, uh, every third day after that I had to go back to the hospital and have debreeding done, which is basically taking a small little blade and then scraping. So every third day I sweated and just dreaded having to go back there. And it wasn't until maybe a month or so that they told me it was third degree they would have to do skin grafts. And I said, you won't do that anymore? I'm fine, sign me up. Funny thing is, I find out from my dermatologist also that that has a good chance of, of having skin cancer, of, of skin cancer starting on those scars. Yeah, where
2: did they take their grafts
3: from? Right from the upper thigh. And after that was done, uh, that, that hurt worse than, than the burns after <laughs> they were done with that. But I was in the hospital for five days um, because there were patella burns and they wanted to keep my legs elevated and so they were in like half casts. And then they go ahead and uh, they, since they don't take it take it off, they leave everything on there, they had to use a glycerin bleach solution that they would pour on my legs every day. So besides being in that kind of pain and in that kind of position, you've got, you're wet all day long. And then sometimes the bleach was a little strong and the back of your legs would start to burn from that too. And then it was after five days of that because they didn't want me to move at all uh then they take the staples out you just you're feeling just 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 the nerves just all the the nerves and the nerves that are burned. i mean I, I don't i don't feel the spots that are burned right now i i have no feeling in the center just pressure but your burns do not go away until until they did the surgery that was it the burns just do not go away i don't know if you've ever seen skin graft surgery also i had them put me out because they're like you're going to be there for a while just just put me out uh they they take the skin which I found out from actually, I was back to work, uh, and I was watching a PBS special on it, and I was like, Ugh, "I'm glad I didn't see it." But they take the skin like off, like a, a cheese peeler would, like peel the skin off. Then they threw it, put it through like a, it's a kind of like a pasta machine where they take the skin and it put, just, puts puts. Uh, they stretch it out. No, they, they put puts the holes in them, and then that way it stretches out. You know, like metal. You can see on the, on this, in fact, right here, you could kind of see the little the mesh. Yes, you can. Where it just it perforates and then they take and they stretch it out like that, and yeah, it was both knees and, and the calf there.
2: Cafferty said his skin grafts were slightly more painful than his next major surgery in 2016. This time, it was to treat his skin cancer.
3: Yeah, it was, it was well over a year or so I had a, a patch on my arm that bothered me, kind of flaky and was, you know, get caught on things and would bleed on occasion. To me, I, I thought maybe it was eczema or seborrhe or something, and I just thought it was, again, something I just had to have looked at from a dermatologist. So I, I set up an appointment, and that takes six months. Now that I have a dermatologist, I can see her any time. But that was another six months there, so it, it's at least over a year since I've had this, this patch on my arm. And I go in dermatology sees disease and realizes how long it's been there. She said, right now we're going to go with skin cancer. We'll do a biopsy and we'll find out. And it came back as it was skin cancer. Squamous cell carcinoma. There's a the basal cell is the most common. And then there's squamous cell carcinoma, which is another kind. It's more of a topical than like a uh, melanoma. Melanoma is one of the worst, basically. Uh, The squamous cell and the the, uh, basal cell are mainly the cells on the top, of, uh, but they can, if if let go, they can go deeper into the tissue below. This was all just uh, pretty much the fat layer that they took off.
2: When that tumor was removed, Brian McCafferty was lucky. It was deemed non-malignant. He went through another paperwork battle, though, when they denied his claim, saying it wasn't work-related. McCafferty's oncologist disagreed, saying it was certainly related to the knee burns and skin grafts. Regardless, he has returned to the Cleveland Division of Fire, but with a fresh interest to keep his gear clean and wash off after every possible exposure to carcinogens. As we wrapped up our interview on a sunny Cleveland afternoon, McCafferty finished off his pale ale. I asked him why, in spite of all the burned knees, the skin grafts, the cancer, why does he continue to go back to work into burning buildings? Almost as if it was choreographed, which it wasn't, his answer was accompanied by the siren of a Cleveland Division of Fire Squad passing by on West 25th Street. So there's research out there now that shows what what kind of chemicals are in the air during a fire. Does it ever give you pause about going in again?
3: No. No, you're you your adrenaline's going at that point. When you when that call comes in and you get that you know, and the sirens are going and you're you're heading to the fire and you're you're looking at you know, like you're looking down the street to see where it's at and okay, we see smoke, it's definitely a working fire and you're you're looking at the house and doing a size up. Your brain's going too far it's too fast at that point to think about not going in because you're thinking about, okay, there's the front door. If I had to, there's a window out that way. Uh, we can get in through here. The stairs look like they might be over here. Well, you know, you go inside, you can't find anything. So you're doing a lot of feeling around. You're just, you're, too much other stuff is going on in your head for you to think about not, not going in and doing your job. We're firefighters. We break things. We like to break things for a living and put fires out.
0: You have been listening to one of a series of podcasts from the Columbus Dispatch in which firefighters and the people around them tell their own stories in their own words. You can find more podcasts, along with stories, videos, and interactive graphics, online at dispatch.com unmasked. This podcast was produced by Doral Chenoweth, with the assistance of reporter Lucas Sullivan and web producer Patrick Flaherty. I'm Mike Meckler. The Columbus Dispatch is a gatehouse newspaper. For information on how to subscribe to our award-winning print and digital content, please visit Dispatch.com.